all of a sudden, like, everybody's Aunt Linda is fucking DMing me on Instagram, being like, you fucked up my favorite show. Uh, You should kill yourself. Samantha Irby started her writing career on MySpace in 2008, and now she is a much loved writer. She's the author of several books of hilarious essays. She's a screenwriter for multiple TV shows, including Tuka and Birdie, Shrill, and the Sex and the City reboot, which is called And Just Like That. She also has a pretty amazing substack called Bitches Gotta Eat about Judge Mathis, the uh, reality courtroom TV show. In this interview, we talk about toilet humor, writing about pain, and what it's like to get attacked by the online superfans of major TV shows. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Samantha Irby. So, Samantha, Sam, I want to start with this anecdote, uh, this experience you wrote about on your Substack uh, with Cynthia Nixon, (laughs) (laughs) who plays the character of Miranda in Sex and the City and the show that you are a writer for, and just like that. What were you doing when she called you to tell you that she liked your script? Oh my God. Well, now you're going to know that I'm for real a stoner because I was stoned (laughs) and I think I was sitting on the toilet at the time that she called. In in the dark, I believe. (laughs) In the dark. (laughs) (laughs) I like to get stoned at night and like listen to nature sounds it's better than being in nature i've never actually go into nature (laughs) but it is very soothing when you're stoned to like listen to i don't know a bubbling brook or whatever and so (laughs) the darkest room in the house is the bathroom so i like to sit in there i mean i sound like a maniac but yes she called i was listening to my bubbling brook and I answered the phone. <laughs> if you ever call me at night, you know what's going on on the other end of the phone now. And what did she say to you once you picked up? Well, so she she had texted me first and I had like a, you know, the thing about like beautiful famous people is they're very stressful to talk to because like I don't want her to hear my like regular like cheese eating voice you know what I mean like you ever talk to somebody really fancy and you're like uh she can like tell that my arteries are clogged or whatever you know so <laughs> <All the> time. <laughs> she she was calling to tell me that she had read a script that I wrote for her show and it had, well, people have seen it now. It had a very graphic sex scene in it. And I was a little worried while writing it. So when I turned the script in, I attached a note to my boss and was like, "Uh, this feels too horny. If it is, it's cause I'm a gross dirt bag, but please, (laughs) Feel free to edit it. So I immediately had a panic that she was like, (laughs) the fingering was a bit much. You know, I don't know what she was going to say. And then I was like, stoned and, you know, 
paranoid. Like this is after she had run for governor as well, and so yes, you're, okay, you're proposing a fingering scene to a governor's part. candidate, right? Yeah, she's not just like a famous lady. She's like was almost the governor of New York, famous. That is very intimidating to a regular person. So I answered, and she told me I was on speakerphone, and I was like. <laughs> oh who's there Hillary Clinton you know what I mean I'm like who is she hanging out with but it was just her wife and she was calling to tell me that she loved the script but I was like sweating and clammy and couldn't handle it and on the toilet and sitting on the toilet in the dark (laughs) I mean that's not a bad place to receive information like that Um, it is if you don't have a pelvic floor anymore and you can't laugh without Pissing you. <laughs> <laughs> pissing you. <laughs> I was like, I hope I don't sneeze on this call because she's going to hear a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, had you already been writing for and just like that for a while? Yes. We were done in the writer's room. So this could be unreliable, but I think we wrote for like three or four months. And when I say wrote, I mean, like talk about these fictional people and what they might fictionally do for a few months. And then the writing period ends or the talking period ends. Everybody goes off and writes their script. Then you turn it in and the people who are going to work on the production, sometimes the writers do, I do not. They go off and start making the shows and people like me go back to our hovels and wait for another job so that part was over and I turned my script in and I am still new enough in Hollywood to not really know what's happening right like I I didn't know if anyone would ever talk to me again (laughs) or like what would happen so when she called I of course was like I hadn't been working on the show for a while like we had wrapped and I was like moving on to, I don't know, just watching Survivor or whatever (laughs) it is I do. And so seeing her call, I was like, oh no, I'm in trouble. But I wasn't. It was was a big relief. And writing for the show has been an experience for you. I know you've gone through some shit. I, I believe like you've got death threats from being a writer on this show. Yeah, so... I had, before this, I had only worked on things that, like, six people watch, (laughs) right? I'd worked on the first season of Shrill. I worked on Work in Progress, which is a show on Showtime. Just got canceled, so R.I.P. in peace. And then I worked on Tuca and Birdie, which is an animated show that a lot of people watch, but, but, like, you know, a relative lot, right? Right. So then working on this juggernaut, I was like working on a, like this cultural thing, right? That so many women my age and older have projected themselves like onto this show, onto these characters. They feel like friends, I, like, no one 
watched anything I had done before. At least that's what it felt like, right? Mm. And then uh, here, here's how small the shows I worked on have been. For Work in Progress, I wrote an episode called FTP with Lily Wachowski, which stands for Fuck the Police. I didn't hear shit. Not one tweet. Not one dude in wraparound mirrored sunglasses yelling at me to jump off a building, right? Nothing. So I was like, I was like, I thought if there was going to be a thing that got me, it would be that. Nothing. And then, like, I worked on a show and made, didn't make, but, like, wrote a scene in which, like, people's favorite character pees in the bed and her husband dies. And all of a sudden, like, everybody's Aunt Linda is fucking DMing me on Instagram being like, you fucked up my favorite show. Uh, you should kill yourself. And that I had did not expect. I was like, this isn't Marvel. This isn't, you know what I mean? If I was working on like Star Wars, which I would never be asked to do, but then I'd be like, well, I got to go into hiding. <laughs> <laughs> so it took you by surprise. Yeah, I just didn't. I didn't expect, um, well, I didn't expect the vitriol to reach someone at my level, right? Like literally the last person on the call sheet. But I think because, because I was like, you know, there are like executive producers who like really right. make the decisions. But I, I think we should all hassle those people. Not the yes. not the poor writers. How did they even I how did mean, they even know that you were responsible for that scene? Well, it was in an episode with my name on it. It's a, and it's a you clue. know, you know how that goes. And like no one, including myself, understands anything. Like they don't just let me write. <laughs> we all work out what's gonna happen and like I put the words in order, but none of these are like my ideas alone. But no one knows that. I think it was a combination of like being the one person in the writer's room who had like a big internet presence, right? Right. And accessibility. And then I think it was also like a lot of the marketing or a lot of like the slant of the articles were like, look at these new writers that they added to this white show. And then I think people in their minds were like, oh, <laughs> they fucked up my show. It's that black bitch's fault. And like, uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not but the I point. I shouldn't like, like die over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's so crazy because I'm like, there are people who like commit actual crimes, but like I gotta die because like this bitch's fake TV husband is dead or whatever. It right. really, I did not expect it at all. And that's on me. How did you, like, how did you, how did you deal with it? Oh, I had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> didn't leave my house. You know what it you know what it did? I I am the type of person who if someone has a a problem, let's say with something I've written, right? I don't get defensive. My my just like natural response is to be like, oh wait, I don't think you understood what I was trying to do. Let's talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't do that. 
on the internet. Like you and I could do that if you were like, listen, your last book was a piece of shit. I'd be like, well, I hear you, brother. Let's get into it. But you can't do that with like people online. Some guy commented on my Instagram and was like, good job emasculating every man on the show. And I was like, well, you're well, I didn't do that, but you're welcome, right? Right. Like, what am I going to say to that? What am I going to say to that dude? So my response was to feel very like, I wish I could just talk to them and tell them what we were trying to do. And then I think I... (laughs) My bigger response was to get off Twitter completely. You see, so you I'm ended like, you ended your account there on Twitter. Yeah, it's it's gone. She gone. Mm. Like it's been like oh, over a year. Um, and that I was never like a big Twitter person anyway because I feel like I don't want to have a public conversation that can be like misconstrued or. I, I just sort of like lurked and occasionally like tweeted a joke or tweeted a like, please buy my book. My right. crops are dying. Please buy my books. <laughs> it was just like, oh, everybody hates this thing that I worked on. This is really hard to see. So I, st- I got off Twitter and I like stopped reading like vulture you know any place where i thought they were gonna talk about how dumb they think the show is i kind of unsubscribed from all of that and then i closed people's access to me i mean you know this i well maybe you don't know but i on my newsletter there's no comment section because i refuse to like host a forum for people to talk shit about me like you can go to reddit or whatever you can like call your mama i don't need to see it and i changed the my newsletter settings so that people's email responses don't come to me i don't know where they go maybe you have a we've got a special podcast in the office that catches them all I appreciate it. (laughs) I won't let it out unless I have your express permission. (laughs) I felt a little bit like, you know, kind of like a big baby, right? You know, there's that uh, Tyler, the creator tweet that's like, how are you getting cyberbullied? Like, just close your eyes. You know, I I I think people should, I'm all for people like saying whatever they want. You hate the show, like, fine. I just am going to close my eyes. And yeah. so that's essentially what I did. Do you think it's healthy for creative people, people who are doing these works that get published to be on social media at all when this can be kind of the reaction? <sighs> Ooh, you are backing me into a corner because the answer is no, right? You have to get off. But <laughs> <laughs> whoever paid you to make the thing is like, oh no, you gotta help sell your thing right right i think so (laughs) not that i have figured out the solution but i feel like as closed off as you can be to and i mean like i on instagram if someone tries to tag me they can't do it because people are I mean, Hamish, you know this. People are just so rude. There, after my last book came out, 
listen to this shit. Some bitch <laughs> tagged me under some other bitch's post and was like, she had posted about my book and uh, this person tagged me, the real me, and was like, um, I, you know, the book was okay, but I was surprised by the stunning lack of race and class analysis. Wow. So I was like... You're like, I'm writing about diarrhea over here. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is a toilet book, you dumbass. <laughs> I was like, if you want that, you better go to ta Coates for that. If you're picking up this book with a fucking uh, cat on it, you are really expecting race and class analysis? Like, get out of here. And what do, you, what do you do with the opposite? How, how do you process the opposite, which is a lot of people love the hell out of your writing. A lot of people are praising you online and fawning over you and telling you you're wonderful, which I encourage them to do so. But like, how, how do you, how do <laughs> you balance that? You, I, won't, I won't see that because I don't look for it. I don't read reviews, even positive ones, because even in the positive, there's some there is always a kernel of like something that my brain, which is medicated with Zoloft, but not cured, <laughs> will like cling to the one little negative kernel in the thing and be like, you got to get better at that. Why did you do that? How many people noticed that? So I can't read anything at all. I think putting yourself out there is so brave in whatever way you do it. And no one ever talks about that bravery. And it's very, ugh, I don't know how to say this the right way, but it's very like internet culture to be like, you need to read the negative reviews. You need to get, you need to hear what people are saying. And you don't, you right. don't, you don't. Is it tougher to come up as a writer in this kind of environment than it was say, even 15 years ago? I think like when I first started blogging in like 2008, something like that, I started blogging on MySpace. So that will tell you. Yeah, how the, much the preeminent know. writing platform. <laughs> I was like chiseling my blogs into a stone tablet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, the thing that sort of like wigs me out now is just I could not be young now because there is just a digital record of everything and I think if we culturally if if people were able to like grow and learn and change in public if people were allowed that space I'd be like yeah jump into it make mistakes put yourself right. out there whatever my writing has changed and the things I'm interested in have changed and my life has changed. And I feel like I started at a time that it was okay to go through those things. Right. But now it's almost like you're expected to be perfect, like right out of the gate. Like your right. joke's got to be good and right. You got to know everything you need to know. And that is, uh, that is like scary to me it's, it's to, like, to, to me it feels like impossible pressure to operate under especially when yeah. artists are supposed to be taking risks yeah yeah it's i mean just the fact that someone can like dial up you know 
your early figuring it out stuff. And I don't even mean like edgy versus, I mean like, you know, if people saw how I dressed in 2005, I would, like, you know, if you pulled out a picture, I would crumble into a ball, let alone like things I may have thought or positions I may have taken. It's real weird to feel like you have to have it all figured out. Yeah. I think, too, one of the things that makes it tough for creative people is this expectation that you have to be everything to everyone, right? I write jokes about diarrhea. I write about depression. I write about, you know, the bullshit that's interesting to me. I am not an expert in politics, policy. I don't know where anything is on a map. You don't need any of my uninformed political opinions. I don't know shit about the economy. What if I start talking about the economy and people listened? Like, that's nuts. And I think for me, like, that is the only way I have been able to continue doing this is because I do what I can do. I don't do what I can't do. And how tonally, how have you been able to keep it up and sort of survive? Because you write, you're writing about some heavy shit, depression, chronic illness, diarrhea, mm-hmm. body falling apart, all these sorts of things. <laughs> how many times can we say that? People it's very important to, to get diarrhea. Be like, don't say it one more time and I'm turning it off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll stop it after this last time. <laughs> diarrhea. But it's a prominent, it's a prominent theme that runs through your work. The tone that you, that you keep though, you write as, even though you're writing about this heavy shit, you write, it sounds like you're having fun. It reads as if you're having fun when you're writing. I am. And in 2008, I think you can be doing that. It's not the sort of thunderdome of cultural and societal pressure from everyone waiting for you to say the wrong thing that they can then leap on and tear you apart. Mm -hmm. 2008 life was like that. 2022 life is not like that, but you've continued that tone, that sort of spirit in your writing, that sense of having fun. How have you been able to do that? I mean, one, it has to be, I can't do a thing that's not a good time, right? And I I do not force myself to do things that feel taxing. I think having an audience and connecting with that audience and knowing that like there are people who get what I'm doing, who want to read what I'm saying, who want to laugh at the things I laugh at and who also like read something I've written and go, that's it. You said the thing that I feel or I can't say or whatever it is. I just think about those people and I kind of, when I'm writing, like I, in my head, I picture one person who's reading it, right? Like one friend, one acquaintance, one whatever. And I sort of write to that person. And it's always like someone I want to make laugh. That is really helpful to me. Like just sort of knowing that it's for specific people who get it. I am never writing to convince someone who isn't into it to get into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like it, I, you know, there are people who like do their work to like change minds and bring people in. That is not 
me. I am open to any new person who wants to be into me, but I think, again, like I understand who I am and I understand my limitations and what I have to offer. I just don't ever feel like I need to lift what I'm doing to someone else's standard. There are other people who, you want people who do like beautiful writing. There are people who do that. Not me. But there are people who do that and you can find them. So I don't ever put any pressure on myself to be something I'm not. Right. I would like a pushback on your own characterizations of your work there. I think it is beautiful writing and I think it is high quality, but it's not high hey, Mesh, Are you trying to marry me? Because I accept. <laughs> we can uh, we can arrange that after this call. Okay. I do think Great. it's be- I do think it's beautiful writing. It's very expressive. It's intensely funny. It's it's got a a cadence and rhythm to us that is free flowing and easy to ingest and have fun with. And it's, it's hard to find writing like that these days. I think because people are fucking scared of what people on the internet are going to say about them. Yeah. It's so I, I think another freedom that I have, that I have that I should acknowledge is that I have been successful, right? Like my books, have been on the New York Times list. So I don't have to worry. Again, it's so, I don't know how anyone makes anything when they have to like worry so much about pissing people off. Like you can't, right? You can't, you can't. (laughs) You kind of should be, you should be pissing some people off. Yes. I have a friend who worked in a library where someone brought my book back and was like, how could you like carry this trash? And if she would have said it to my face, I would have maybe burst into tears, but she said it to my librarian friend. So I was like, well, you know, okay. (laughs) Yeah. How could you carry that trash? (laughs) But like, I, I think having, like a proven formula also frees me up to continue to be myself and do what I'm doing because I know that there's an audience for it. So I, I don't, I don't really have to check myself as much because it's like, well, there's a baseline of this many people who are going to get it and buy it. So I don't worry about that. It's something I wish like everybody could, could feel. One of the things that will help make us have a successful marriage, um, putting aside the fact that you're married already is that we're about the same, we're about the same age and we came up at a similar time Mm -hmm. and yet blogging in 2008, you kind of crossed the bridge into proven success before the sort of culture wars ratcheted up all the mm-hmm. the problems of writing in public. And I really worry about people who are starting out today not having the ability to cross that bridge because the, the bridges are kind of being taken down. What sort of advice do you give to people who are starting out today and want to be like you, want to write like you, want to have that freedom? I would say, I mean, first of all, I have to admit that I don't know that I ever ever could ever write anything about like the news you know those people are braver than the troops 
I don't know how people report because like people don't even hear the news. Like, you know what I mean? Like people don't even hear the same, the same news story in the same way. I have fight with a friend. I can't even remember what it was, what started it. But I basically was like, all I said was, he was outraged about something. And I was like, oh, wait, but what happened? Like, what are the facts? Right. And he was like, no, no, you need to be mad about that. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll get there. But like, who and what? Right. Did he have a good answer? Did he actually know what had happened? What did he no! know the facts? Yeah, just knows that he should no! be angry. Just yeah. knew that he should be angry. And I was like, "Sir, we can't. We can't do this. Like we're in our forties. Yeah. If the kids do it, fine. Yeah, you know, yeah. like great. But like, you can't be like forty-two years old being like, you know, I'm pissed. Not hundred percent sure what I'm pissed about, but yeah. I'm pissed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a so, lot of sudden experts and, and esoteric issues that arise at a time of sort of something blowing up in, on Twitter in a trending tab. Yeah. I just didn't like, to, can we, I think the hard thing is like, I'll hear about something not on Twitter, which is, which is great because it doesn't have anyone else's spin on it yet. And then like trying to figure out where to read about it in a way that I could feel like I know about it, but not like. Which telling me how to feel about it right. is almost mm-hmm. impossible. It's hard to find. So advice for people who do like the kind of thing I do is you just, and this is this is a thing that I like truly believe in and practice is I just have to make myself happy first. Mm-hmm. I have to be writing about a thing that I feel motivated to write about that makes me excited is a stretch. I'm not really, <laughs> I don't really get excited to sit down, but like I write for myself first. Right. And I don't think that you can go wrong if you're doing that. And if you're being like true to yourself, which sounds so hacky like i hear myself saying it and i'm like cringing to death but i just am like what makes me laugh and and even if you're not if you aren't writing like funny stuff like what moves me what am i thinking about what is this making me feel i feel like if you're honest about those things with yourself and in your writing at least if you're challenged on it, you'll have a response, right? Like if someone comes to me and is like, oh, that thing you did was so bad. I'll be like, well, it's your opinion, but also it's what happened and it's how I feel about it. Didn't resonate with you. I get it. But like, I can stand behind it because I wrote it for myself first. Right. Yeah, I think if you can get some people to like it, then yeah. some other people might like it too. Yeah, and it, it may it may just be two people, or it may just be yourself. <laughs> but it's kind yeah. of okay if it's just yourself. Yeah, it is okay if it's just yourself. I think, and again, I don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm not going to say the word capitalism because I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but you just know we're supposed to be angry about it. <laughs> yes, 
but also I'm like, uh, shit costs money. So I, and I got to make money. So, okay. I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times like I'll do like a talk or whatever. And some young writer will be like, when will I start making money? And I'll be like, you got to have a job. I had a job until a few years ago, an hourly clock punching job. I did my writing on the side. What was your job? I I worked in an animal hospital (laughs) for like 15 years. And before that, I worked in a bakery and I I was like my friend's dad's personal assistant. Like I've had a lot of like for real jobs, like. 12 hours a day, uh, you're exhausted and poor at the yeah. end of it. jobs. And I would write my blog on my lunch break. I would write on the weekends. I, it took a very long time for anything I wrote to make me any money. What compelled you to do that? Like, why were you writing this blog obsessively in your lunch break? Were you trying to get known? Oh were, you trying, were you trying to... Be- become a professional writer was it is it just a sort of an unhealthy compulsion something like that no i was not trying to be a writer so i like i am from working class people my parents both died when i was 18 right and uh it was like (laughs) ground into me as a kid uh you need to have a job right like you gotta work um and writing uh did not seem like a real job it's still doesn't really feel like a real job. I am like ready at any moment to have to like go bag groceries or whatever, like when my career uh, dries up for whatever reason, because the market is fickle. But (laughs) I started writing. This should be embarrassing, but sadly it is not. I started writing that blog because I met this dude who was like, I'm really into writers. And at that point, I had written a bunch in high school, right? I, <laughs> I'd i written like short stories. That was my thing. I was like, I'm going to be a short story writer. And then I'd drop out of college because if going to college with no help is like nearly impossible. So I dropped out. I started working. And I still kind of fiddled around with the writing because it was like a good escape. But I wasn't really really doing it and then i met this dude who was like (laughs) really into writers and i wanted him to be really into me so i was like i write but then i was like you're like have you ever heard of myspace (laughs) i haven't written anything yet this is how pathetic it was i was so i didn't want to show him like a bunch of like out of context manuscripts from high school so he was like where can i read your work and then I started my MySpace blog just to convince this one dude to have sex with me. It worked. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> this is such a heartwarming story. I'm almost crying. Oh, he was such a piece of shit. And I was such a loser. Like, mm, I started this blog to get with you. But we did for a long time. And like, that was great. And so after we broke up, I was like, oh, well, fuck this. I'm done with the blog. And my friend Laura was like, no, no, we actually read that. You should keep doing it. And I was like, 
you're going to be out of your mind. And so she kept hounding me to do it. So I started a blog spot, truly just for my dumbass friends to read. And I kept doing it because they kept reading it. And then everybody got off MySpace and went to Facebook. And I was like, oh, okay. So that's the end of that. This was a fun experiment. And then Laura was like, no, you should post the blogs on Facebook. And slowly, I don't even know how, the magic of computers, like you can explain better than I could, how my stupid shit like made it to people outside of the handful of people I know in real life. And like actual people were reading it. And I was like, you know, looking at the, uh, I don't even know what it's called, like the analytics no whatever but the analytics is good yeah okay (laughs) very professional sounding (laughs) thank you (laughs) and i was like oh man like two thousand people clicked on this so then my yawning pit of need opened up and was like hey people like us we're getting attention keep doing this and so I just kept doing it. And then it became, then I started performing around Chicago, like essentially printing out my blogs and reading them at storytelling shows. And then I hosted a storytelling show. And then at one of those shows, these dudes who run a small press in Chicago came up to me and were like, hey, we'd love to do a book with you. And I was like, get out of here. And they, they pursued me for years because I was like, sounds like a lot of work and I don't want to do it. I have a job. And finally, I relented and we put out like the first version of Meaty. I didn't make any money, but it got around. And then the man who's now my agent somehow got it and got in touch with me. And the rest is history. Man. It's an amazing story. (laughs) Thank you. Honestly, though, with writing and stuff, it's like, what can you hope to get other than, like, laid, right? Right. Like, it's like a one in a million thing to have super famous writing success. Honestly, that is, can I add that to my advice, is to aim low. I have always, always managed my expectations um and i think that is why (laughs) i am as satisfied as i've been in this career because i didn't i truly every new thing i get to do is like ah look at that you want me to do that rather than like striving and being rejected and any of that stuff. I just am like, I'm going to do what comes to me. I'm going to take the opportunities that I'm given and I'm not going to shoot for the moon. And Sam- that way I don't have to be sad <laughs> when I miss the moon. So Samantha Irby's inspirational advice to young writers, keep your dreams in check. <laughs> yes. No, that's real. Why don't we, I did this thing at Northwestern. I did this talk with like MFA students And I got in big trouble because I was like, oh, y'all should drop out. The professor was like, shut up. (laughs) I was like, I was like, I don't know, man. 
if you guys want to be writers, you should get jobs that pay. That's another thing about having a regular job is like, I never had to worry about writing, my writing paying me. So I never had to put any restrictions on it. Right. It's like, if you're writing for X publication, you know, you have to stay within their parameters because that's where you get your money from. But if my money is coming from like picking up dog shit, it doesn't matter what I write. I can write what I want because I don't. You can put down dog shit. (laughs) I can produce dog shit through (laughs) my fingers because it doesn't matter because like my Wi-Fi is paid by my day job. I think, yeah, I think that's a big part of the freedom too because I don't have, like there is no generational wealth in my family. Like both my parents died in debt that I then had to pay off. There was no like safety net or or helping hand or any of that, which is fine because I always worked and then I could do what I wanted to do on the side without the pressure of it needing to be something or take care of me or whatever. It was just like a diversion. So how how does it feel to you now that you are making your full-time living from writing? It is um, scary because it doesn't, it doesn't feel (laughs) like a real job you know, and it feels like the kind of thing that if I paid more attention to it could really stress me out. But you know, like one day you are in and the next day your ass is out. And I don't think you get to decide that, you know? So it's like, I don't know if I have a, if I'm at the beginning of a David Sedaris type career or if after a while, like, they're going to be like, <laughs> you're 40 what years old? Oh, okay. Oh, goodbye, ma'am. And I get it. So I'm doing like the least sexy thing while I can, which is like trying to pay off my house so that if I don't sell any more books, at least my house is paid for, you know, that kind of thing. I, I don't know. I, I feel uncertain all the time which is okay you know it's like i i am always like realistic and i don't get out in front of my my skis ever like i'm fully prepared for the day that (laughs) my agents like can't sell this one and then i'll pack it up you know i think the thing that scares me the most in general is uh, being embarrassed and like not getting it. And if I don't understand when my time is up, if it ever is up, hopefully it's not up soon, that would be humiliating to me. So like at the first sign that people are like, we're sick of you, I'm out. (laughs) Well, I find it hard to believe that this might be ending anytime soon. I'm pretty sure it's not going to. At the very, very least, you could be continuing to write these uh, reviews of the Judge Mathis interview uh, episodes that you do on Substack for an adoring audience that will keep paying you to do that and you'll be uncancelable. Hamish, can you believe that people signed up for this stupid-ass email? 
Can you? Be- I mean, I can know you, you can, can you believe, believe it. it? No, no. Okay. So <laughs> what do you think? Left, what do you think is going on there then? I, I honestly, I don't. I feel like I don't want to probe it too deeply. Otherwise, the bubble will fucking <laughs> burst. People will be like, actually, bitch, this sucks. Early in the pandemic, I was like home, and I. So I had started the newsletter, and then almost immediately, it was like, oh what what do I have to say? What am I going to do? I'm always like, what is the sustainable thing? Like, what's the thing that I can keep doing? I don't know that I'm going to keep having good thoughts. Right? <laughs> so I was like, what can I do that? Because so I feel like, oh, the newsletter, I have to do it. Has to come out. If I don't send out two or three a week, I feel like I'm fucking up at work. Like it's, it's, I'd like think of it as my job <laughs> to watch episodes of this television show and write about it for people. I like mean, that if, is my. If you don't do that, who's going to do it? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. So when, when I first thought about, because I was like, I want to do this, what can I do? a lot. And then it was like, oh, well, I can write about this TV show. And this is before I got off Twitter. I tweeted, if I wrote a recap of Judge Mathis in my newsletter, would anyone want to read it? And like, all it takes for me is one yes, right? (laughs) And so a few people said yes. And I was like, great, I'm doing this. I used to do it every day of the week in the very beginning. It took a minute to figure out like, the balance. I think I was overwhelming people. I don't ever want reading my stuff to feel like work, even though to me it is a job. So I think, you know, we, the audience and I decided that two to three a week is good. And I cannot believe, I just got a message from someone in England who was like, I've never seen this show, but I read all of your recaps. And that was like my highest honor. But do you want to hear something insane? I do. Like a year ago, I come home. We still have a house phone because my wife believes in having a house phone. <laughs> Kids of the 80s. <laughs> like, what's an, an easier way to say like you're an old lesbo <laughs> than to be like, we have a house phone and four cats. Okay. Um, (laughs) we wear sweaters and we eat a lot of soup. Okay. So we come home, the the machine is blinking and I'm like, who, who left a message on this number? So person listens to it and she's like, oh my God, you have to hear this. And I was like, here we go. So I go sit at the dining room table. She plays it. It's a guy who's like, hey, this is David from Warner Brothers. We've been alerted to your newsletter. And I just want to talk. <laughs> First thing I thought was like, oh, I got to get a lawyer. I can't believe I've been doing some illegal shit. And Warner Brothers caught me. 
I called him back like three days later because I was really nervous. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, I don't know who sent it to me, but someone read your newsletter, forwarded it to me. I've read all of the archives and I subscribed. Wow. And I told the judge about it. Are you, are you going to be invited on the show? Well, so they wanted to work together. Here, okay. Here's the downside of a newsletter. It's impossible to do other projects on other people's timelines because this I just get to do whenever I want. And so I was talking to them and they were like, well, we could do a podcast. We could do this. We could do that. And you'll have to do it every week at this time. And it was like for not a lot of money. And I was like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a great position to be in. Yeah, I had I was like, oh, I don't think you guys understand, but like the newsletter, I just do it when I want, and like some people pay for it, and it's very easy for all of us. And they were like, okay, we get it, but the judge does know, and maybe one day I'll I'll get to meet him or something. Would there but, be a would there be a hero moment for you? I, Hamish, I would lose my mind. <laughs> it seems like it's the sort of thing that should happen. Like it seems I within the realm like of possibility. Can. I feel like it can. I feel like it can. He's gonna hear this. I'm gonna send this to the Definitely. Warner Brothers people yep. and be like, "Could you play this for him? Let's make it please? happen." I'll bring the power of Substack to bear into help me <laughs> make this happen. Thank you. I'll use the computers. We'll do some computer stuff. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I don't know how any of that works. No. Thank you. I'll use, I'll, I'm here for you. I'll help you. <laughs> I just want, before we, before we wrap it up here, I want to ask you what it's like to be working and living in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, because I bet people ask you this all the time. I bet it's kind of part of your brand a little bit. Partly because people just like saying the word Kalamazoo is kind of interesting. <laughs> From New Zealand, I, I've never heard of a place like with a name like that, but I love saying it, Kalamazoo. But what effect does it have on your psychology as a writer, especially when so many of the writers who you might consider your peers or who would consider you a peer are living in New York or Los Angeles? Well, that's real. Okay, so... I think because I've made, I have leaned into being from the Midwest, which I don't know if you've spent any time here, but it's great. The people you are lovely. Very nice people. Anytime. Yes, we're very nice. So it has helped in that even just moving from Chicago to here, I feel I can lean more into the like rustic. <laughs> Uh, casserole of it all. I can really like make that my thing. I also feel like New York, oh, people are going to get mad. I hate New York. Hate it. Um, only because, and I have the same attitude with cities as I do with books. It's just not for me. It's too fast. It's too loud. There's too much. I have been many times, and every time I'm like, time to go home. 
So on practical, above all else, uh, we have a big house here that probably costs what your car costs, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) we have room to spread out uh, and, you know, like a garage. So like that part of it is great. And I can like sort of make it part of my brand and the whole thing. I also don't feel... And I mean, you'd have to talk to someone who lives in New York or LA to to see if it's different for them. But I don't think I feel the kind of competition that writers who live in big cities feel with each other, right? Like, I'm not going to those events. You know, there's no like, uh uh-oh, Sam's in this group of people that got posted on Instagram, right? Like, there's... Mm -hmm none of that happening it's it's like oh there's sam's other cat (laughs) (laughs) so i don't feel like i am missing much and i do i think i would feel less assured about myself and my work if i lived in a place where there were constantly other people who were doing better or more interesting things with their writing than I am. Because like, there, I mean, there are some novelists who are just like so unbelievably talented. And if I was running into them at the bar, you know, I would like go home and throw my laptop out (laughs) of the window, right? So I don't know if... If my psychology is, I mean, I think it's been good for my brain, at least to not, I just don't feel as stressed as I could feel or as, and I'm not really a competitive person. So while I feel on the outside of lots of these writer communities, I don't want to be inside them. (laughs) Super (laughs) interesting. So the kind of the Samantha Irby recipe for success is keep your dreams in check, get the fuck off Twitter, and move to Kalamazoo. Yes. I mean, honestly, it's so beautiful here right now. You should... You get paid by the city to say this. stopover spot. I know you're jet-setting around. I mean, you live... I mean, where do you live? San Francisco? San Francisco, yes. I know it's beautiful there, but... Nice, yeah. Yeah, and like some people are dying good. on the streets and I have to walk my kids <laughs> past those people dying on the streets and it's kind of become normal for the, the kids. I worry about that kind of thing. Sometimes I think of places like Kalamazoo and, and on <laughs> the strolls. When you're ready to like get away from it, I do think you have to reach that point, right? When you're like, I cannot have another person I don't know touch me or talk to me or get in my way. When you reach that point, I will be here waiting for you. I I want to read this just a line from the profile you wrote of Lizzo for Time magazine mm-hmm. in 2019 because it just struck me as quite profound and also lightly expressed in a beautiful way. And I just want to hear what your response is to this line now that the year is 2022, not 2019. And the line is, talking about uh, Lizzo's uh, sort of optimistic, positive outlook music and how it makes people feel good and how, uh, this is the quote, that is particularly appealing this year with the internet a scary toilet, measles somehow making a comeback 
and everyone just memeing themselves through it because no one can afford to go to therapy. <laughs> Since that time, COVID has happened. The memes have intensified. Uh, therapy has probably been harder and more expensive to get. So, you know, what do you think now, uh, being had, having this line read back to you three years <laughs> later? I... I think that about how that person had no idea how much worse it was going to get. I will admit to a point, depression memes really get me through the day right now. Um, so thank you to all of the meme creators. Although I will say I'm now listening to mostly sad music. <laughs> I am not listening to upbeat, positive music. I'm leaning in. Everything's bad. The internet is still a scary toilet. I was right about that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm like, oh, that person didn't even know what was coming. Yeah. I think we're still there. Although now, I don't know if this was true a few years ago, but every podcast I listen to, like has an ad for like a textable therapist. So oh, wow. Maybe people at least are like texting with a therapist. I had to get a therapist and a psychiatrist. So it's rough out here. Do you see any reason for hope? Does the sad music, is the sad music going to get us through? Are the memes <laughs> going to improve to such a point that we can heal the world's problems? The memes will save us. I do believe, I mean, Okay, I will pay the internet a compliment. The internet and its denizens a compliment. When the memes are funny, they're so funny. And that, like, makes me hopeful. That, like, when I... You ever, like, see something or read something and you're just like, okay, we're all right. People are still yeah. funny. People yeah. are still laughing. I think that's it for me. My hope comes from... I mean, there are so many humorless people and like, that's fine. We need them to like run the banks or, <laughs> you know, do the accounting. Like, <laughs> yeah. we need, we need people to do like all of the smart work. We need like rocket ships built or whatever. But my hopefulness comes like when I see people who can still like laugh and have a good time. That's when I'm like, okay. Oh, we're still laughing at Chip? Okay, good. Like, that that makes me hopeful. Oh, I will say that your work is serves that purpose for me. It's Here's a person writing with freedom and fun and with no self-consciousness. <laughs> and it's a delight to read. And I think it will help a lot of people, um, even if you only write it to help yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you are the best. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, we should do this every week. We, this yeah, is we, can, than we, we can make this a show. Yeah, yeah. We can make this a, <laughs> a double act. <laughs> I'm hoping this is going to be the perfect segue into uh, talking about the, the Substack post that you're nominating for uh, people to read. Yes. What if I had one that was like, it's about nuclear conflict is coming. Dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is a new. Substack that I followed recently, and I even pay for. I pay for so many. Good. <laughs> when I realized that people can like see your name when you sign up, I was like, "Oh shit, I have to pay." <laughs> I don't want anyone to 
That's our whole business model. It's just social pressure translated oh, into so money. Oh, me signed up for my shit and that bitch didn't pay? Fucker. I can't have that. Um, <laughs> it's a new, a relatively new Substack. It's called Now That I Mention It. And it's written by Meacham Merriweather. It's so funny. It's like, so the one, you know, I spent an hour and a half saying I did not want to hear anyone's opinions, but I do love to hear like a perfectly distilled pop culture funny opinion. Like that's really my sweet spot. And he wrote, <laughs> he wrote an entry called A Eulogy for Chris Pine's Long Hair. This is very political. <laughs> And it was so fun. I just like laughed and laughed. Every issue of his newsletter is like a joy to read for me. And so I don't know him. I I want to know him. It's one of those people where you're like, who is this? Why aren't we friends? Oh, that's cool. How how do I not know you? I don't even remember how I found it, but it's so funny. I mean, so great. Fantastic. Well, thanks for the recommendation. And thanks for joining me for this conversation. It's, uh, it was my it's, pleasure. Yeah. Real, I mean, uh, hopefully uh, your other people can live up. No, no, there's no, there's no living up to this. There's, I'm going to stop the podcast after this episode. So well, it's going to be a full I mean, episode. That's kind of what I series. thought. <laughs> I was like, we all knew, opening. we all knew what was going to happen here. <laughs> grand opening, grand closing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for uh, for your writing and your work. And thanks for the conversation. It's been a great time. Thank you. Hamish, you rule. You can find Samantha Irby on Substack at bitchesgottaeat.substack.com. The links are in the show notes. And next week, I talk to the economist and public intellectual, Glenn Lowry. See you then. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com.